just in Jesus' name. Amen. Please, let's take our seats. And if you're able, turn in your Bibles to Colossians 1. And it's on page 983 in the church Bibles, if you're using one of those. And will you believe it? This is all we're studying today. It's just the slide that's on the screen. We're just going to look at one slide today. It's a, it's a pleasant change from doing swathes of Ezekiel and previous uh, Sundays. So, so it's just this, but we're going to drill down into it because we really understand it. But let's just remind ourselves of what's happened before. Now, children, you'll remember this is a letter, isn't this? It's a letter written by who? Paul? Who do said that? Is it Paul who said that? Paul? No. Natasha? It's Paul who wrote this letter. And he wrote it to who? Wrote it to the? You know that. We sp- the Colossians. He wrote it to the Colossians. Very good. He wrote it to the Colossians. Now, last week, I'm... It's, it's like he just, he just overflowed with worship to God. He just started saying the one thing after another that's all about how great God is, how wonderful Jesus is, what amazing things he has done. And, uh, and you, might, you might think that Paul just for a moment forgot that he's writing a letter to people that's going to read it. It, it was almost as if we just had a peek into his prayer life. He was there in his, in his study or in his room. He was on his knees and he's just praying to, to God and he's saying, Your son is the image of the invisible God. He is before all things. He made all things. In him, all things all together. He just broke out and he just started worshiping and worshiping and worshiping Jesus. Now, as we pick up this passage, you see how Paul comes back to us. He comes back. The very first two words are right there. And you. (laughs) And you. So it's like... It's, it's like he catches himself. I've been worshiping Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And then all of a sudden he says, oh, hang on. I'm writing a letter. I'm writing it to the Colossians. He said, oh, yeah, and you. But that's not entirely true. Because you see, Paul, like Jesus, knows that it isn't just about us in the same way as it isn't just about God. It is in us and in our joy in God, that God gets glory. God and us as his image bearers come together in the gospel, in the cross of Jesus. And it's in those two poles between God and us that God gets glory. So let's see what he says about us in this passage. He says, and you. Now we'll find out who we are. It's the Colossians. They were the first people he wrote And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. It's worth knowing this. The Colossians are a church. They're in a city called Colossae. And they're made up of Jews that want to go back to Jewish practices. And they're made up of pagans that believe all the Greek gods of the time. And and these guys have become Christians. There's very few of them that were born to parents that were Christians and were raised in Christian families. These guys were They were pagans. They were atheists. They were people who rejected God. And he says, and you, 
who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. He is now reconciled. Let's read the rest of the passage, and I'll come back to that reconciled. He has reconciled us by his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And then verse 23, if. Sounds like a conditional, a conditional phrase. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister or the other word, a deacon. I became a servant. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled. So it was interesting, I asked the children before the service, what do they understand when I say the word reconcile? You would think that they wouldn't have a clue, would you? Reconcile. Thankfully, there was one of the children that could immediately explain to me how the, the double input, double entry accounting system works and could explain to me that you need to reconcile your bank statement to your ledger no, that didn't happen. Simple answer was reconcile. Oh, people make up. They just make up. I think kids see it from time to time. Parents do make up from time to time. They do fall out. They need to be reconciled. Perhaps uh, they see more than we think they see. They see when church members, friends, we have fallen out with one another and there's a need to be reconciled. And they can feel perhaps when you've had each other for lunch and you sit down and you had a chat and, and when the friends have left, then there's just, oh, there's peace. They can look at their parents and say, oh, they're happy now. I don't know what's happened, but they are, there's something has changed. There's peace. Perhaps you've experienced this yourself in the house that you live in, friends that you share your house with, that you have fallen out. And you're in need of reconciliation. The, no, the way you know that you've fallen out, that you're not in a place of reconciliation, is that you're estranged from another, from one another. The key goes into the door. Your flatmate returns, opens the door. And normally, you'll jump out, hey, how are you? From your room, because you heard them come in. But instead, you hear the key. And you make sure your door is shut. Your phone is on silent. I'm not here, because I don't want to see them. Oh, they're in the kitchen at the moment. I can hear them opening the kitchen. Oh, I'll wait. I need a coffee. I need a coffee. But they're in the kitchen at the moment. I'll wait until I hear the sweet sound of their bedroom door shut. I'm safe. I go out. I can move again. That's people that are estranged, that are in desperate need of reconciliation. They need to make up. And you know, it causes great anxiety to your heart. If these are people that you just live with, that if you fall out with them, that's what it feels like. These are people that you go to church with, and part of your church community, you fall out, it creates great anxiety in your heart. This is your husband, your wife, your children, your boss or your colleagues. It creates great anxiety in your heart when we fall out with one another. And Paul is saying there is an anxiety that should be stirred in our hearts that's far greater than any of these anxieties all combined, and that's the fact that we have fallen out with God. That we're in a state of estrangement with God. And that we're in desperate need of reconciliation with Him. So if you're not a Christian here today, and you're not at the moment anxious about the fact that you're at a place of estrangement and hostility between you and God, 
I, I want to make you uncomfortable. Essentially, I want to kind of punch you in the heart and just say, be worried about that. <laughs> be, be anxious about that. Because he is more important than your flatmate, your colleague, your husband, your spouse. He, he is your creator. He is the father who made you. And if he's moving around his house, which is all of creation, and you're having to hide all the time, there's no place to hide. Your life, your life will be filled with anxiety and fear and will lack confidence, will lack joy, because you're not at peace with God, the Father, the creator of the universe. But that's what this passage says. It says in verse 21, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled. We're going to find out how he's reconciled us. But, but the point is, Paul can say with great confidence to his hearers, he has now reconciled. He, he's pointing to something that's happened in history that, that, that makes it firm and secure that there is now actual peace between them and God. He can point to an event that happened in the past and say, there, right then and there, that's when your reconciliation took place. You can get great confidence. This is not something that has to happen in your mind. It's not some sort of doetic, esoteric, fictional thing that needs to happen in your mind. Oh, yeah, I feel at peace. Yeah, that worship song really just brought me a sense of peace. I feel at peace. No. Don't get your satisfaction. Don't get your peace from the experience. Get your peace from the historical fact. Because Paul says he has now. He's going to tell us something about something that happened in history. He carries on to say what is it that's happened in history. He made peace. He made peace through the blood of his cross. That's how we read last week. You've got your Bible in front of you. Look at the end of verse 20. That's where we ended last Sunday. It talks about reconciliation, verse 19. For in him, that's Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. How? By the blood of his cross. There was an actual event that Jesus, that God did, with which he reconciled us, with which he made peace between us and him, and that was in the historical event that took place between him and us when his son died on the cross. Now, I'm going to jog your memories a little bit. A few years ago, there was an image. There was two brothers that ran a duathlon. Can you remember the Abbott brothers? Is that right, Abbott? Brownlee brothers, of course. It's the Brownlee. Look at that. It was awful, wasn't it? I mean, that scene of these two brothers, they've run, run and cycled and swam. It's not duathlon, it's triathlon. And, I mean, do yourself a favor. In fact... I did this with Hinta and Steph in the office on Thursday or Friday. I showed it to them in slow motion. And I'm doing it at my own expense because the guy who won was a South African guy. And he was really arrogant. In fact, nauseatingly arrogant. I, I'm sure he's a lovely guy and he's worked really hard to win the race, so that's fine. But the real story was playing off behind him. These two Brownlee brothers, they're running, but the, the one in second place. Children, you want to see this. This is how he ran, the one in second place. looking at this on the television you think man this isn't right i mean this guy needs medical help he, he's he's lost control over his legs he's just falling through uh, and so the camera looks at him he's in number one brownlee brother number one is in number one position he comes around the bend he's running and he's staggering like this 
And you look at him, and the next moment the camera shows the two runners that's in second and third position coming around the bend. And it's Brownlee brother number two. And it's number three, Henry Prinsloo or Snaimon or whoever who's the South African guy who's running behind. And they're coming for him. But this brother number two, he looks at his brother staggering at the front. And you can see he's picking up the pace. I'm going to help my brother. That's what he's going to do. So he runs. And he gets to his brother. And what does he do when he gets to his brother? What do older brothers do with younger brothers when they're in trouble? They don't laugh at them. <laughs> they don't ridicule them. Real good older brothers stop. He stopped. He picked up his brother. He had his hand under his neck. And there goes the South African guy, and he's off. You know how he, how he, how he, tr how he celebrated when he came through the first place. He ran his first place. He gets to the front. He tears the ribbon. Yeah, yeah. But no one is looking at him at number one because everyone is looking at number two and three because Brownlee brothers are helping one another. And Brownlee brother number two, eldest brother, he's carrying brother number one and he's carrying them and they're staggering to the finishing line. They're staggering to the finishing line. There's no number four or five behind them. And they get to the finishing line. And now the question, who's going to be second? Who's going to be third? This you've got to do in slow motion. Remember, go back. Go back. They stop at the finishing line. Eldest brother takes his younger brother. He takes him. They're at the, the finish line's right there. Takes his brother. And he chucks him over the line. Brilliant. He just collapses. There he gets his chance to throw him on the floor because he literally just falls on the floor. You go back in slow motion, what you'll see is the best thing you'll ever see. In fact, if this does not make you cry, you are made of stone. He pulls back. He, he has his brother like that. He looks. And then he looks at his brother. And he gets the biggest grin on his face he's ever had. In fact, it is the it's not a grin. Of, it's not a cynical grin. It's joy. It's pure, unadulterated joy. What joy is that? The pleasure of giving pleasure. That's what he has. He, he, he gets this whole sense. Is I'm getting to give number two to someone else. I'll be number three. There's no joy in being number two and looking at him number the, the real joy is in giving joy. That's what's happened there. It's a real event that took place. He, he had to take his, his brother in history and he had to push him over the finish line. When he threw him over the finish line, that took place in history. He was second, I'm third. That, that's what Paul is roughly saying here. He's saying, but now something happened in history, an actual event, Christ did something for us, but, but let's not miss what Christ, why Christ did what he did. He did it for the pure pleasure of giving pleasure. I've got to do a little bit of background, so just go back to Colossians. You'll see where it starts. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. God was pleased. It gave God pleasure to take on flesh in Jesus Christ so that through him he can reconcile to him all things. God had great pleasure in taking on flesh in Jesus Christ so that he could come to earth and die our death so that he can take us and throw us over the finishing line so that we can get eternal life. God had great pleasure, it says. Jesus had great pleasure for the joy set before him he came to the cross. He had great pleasure in giving us eternal life. That is why, if you want to be in step with the Spirit in this world, do not live for yourself. It is not about first place, as our 
first place contestants showed just now. The arrogance is, it's, it's offensive, it is, it is nauseating, uh, it, is, it is unpleasant. The thing, the real story is where people are laying down their lives to give others life. And that's what God came to do in his son. And that is what he's calling us to do, but that's for another sermon. Today he is saying, you were hostile in mind, you were God's enemies, but God came in history. You once were alienated. He has now reconciled. How? We know it's through the blood of the cross because that's what verse 20 says. But it goes on. Reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. He wants us to not be confused about this. Christ did not forfeit second position so that we can be second. Christ forfeited life so that we can have life. By the death of his actual physical body he's insisting that god was really man in jesus christ it wasn't just so some of the heresies at the time were saying well people thought that he was god perhaps he pretended to be god but what's important is he has to stand up in your heart and you've got to have a warm fuzzy feeling when you think about jesus no no paul says this is something that happened in history god took on flesh in jesus the incarnation leads leads to our reconciliation it's because he was in Christ, and it's because of the crucifixion uh, that actually happened in history with a date and time that we can be released from death by his death. Now we'll find out why he did this. Verse 22 said, he has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death. Why? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now, this doesn't make sense to us. We don't talk about that. If you want to introduce me to a new friend you made at work, you say, well, this is Dave. He's my colleague from work. Uh, all I can say to you is holy, blameless, and above reproach. It's not something we often speak of. It's not phrases that we use often. This is my child. He's holy, blameless, and without reproach. You don't present anyone that you come in, you know, uh, that you present to other people in that way. Uh, why is Paul doing it here? Because he's using Old Testament language. He's using Old Testament language. In fact, the language that he's using is cultic terminology. Well, that sounds weird. It's the kind of stuff that you said when you're going to the temple and you have with you your goat or your sheep that you're going to sacrifice. And you get to the temple and the priest says, yes, do you have a sacrifice? Yeah, I do. Here is my sheep. You present your sheep. You say, the sheep of mine is holy, is blameless, and is above reproach. This sheep, in other words, is perfect for sacrifice. Here is something that is perfect, that is sinless, that is without defilement or blemish, is prepared and is ready. An innocent one, in other words, is right here, ready to take my place, because I'm not innocent but the innocent one will die for my sin and temporarily, that's how the Old Testament sacrifice system worked, will bring peace between me and God. If you came with a sheep that was lame or sick or it was your least important one, the priest will say, no, no, they're off. You need a blameless, holy and above reproach sheep. That's what you need, yeah. <laughs> what Paul is saying, he's, he's saying to the church, he says, Christ was the holy, blameless, and above reproach one that died to make you holy, blameless, and above reproach. He is making you prepared for God's presence. He is making you ready for God's presence. 
And let's just connect these two things together because we heard that God did this through the death on the cross. He, he, he did this. He prepared us. He made us holy, blameless, and without reproach through the death of his son. I don't know how many of you have heard this, remember this story in the Bible, but there's a lady. It's just a little cameo story. There's a lady who interrupts Jesus. He's on his way. An important man's son is dying. That's Jesus come to him. He says, look, my son is dying. Can you come rush to my house? And Jesus takes his time, but eventually he keeps going. He gets going. And on his way, a woman, which in that society was of least importance, is crying out, Jesus, Jesus, help. No, she's not crying out. She's doing nothing. She slips through the crowd. She's got a problem. She's got a flow of blood. Now, that's not just a physical problem that is causing a great discomfort, but it is also, it is also something that makes her religiously unfit for the temple. No one thinks of that, but if you have a flow of blood, you cannot come into the temple. You're unclean. This poor lady has been in that position for years and years. And then she comes to Jesus and she touches him in the same way that in the Old Testament temple, they will take the goat and they will touch him, putting their sins on his head. And then their sins flow to this goat. And this goat goes out into the field and it's killed out there. And she understands something of this, and she says, I just want to touch Jesus. If I touch him, I will be made fit for, presence, for God's presence. I will be made ready. I'll be prepared. I'll be wholly blameless and without reproach. If only I can touch the perfect scapegoat, the perfect lamb that takes away my sin. And she touches Jesus. And the moment it happens, he turns around and he sees her. And he says to her, you've been made well. In that phrase, he brings those two things together. Your sins have been forgiven. You've been given eternal life. And you've been made religiously pure so that you can come into the temple. You, you've been made well. And you know the only reason he can say that? He can stop her flow of blood in that very moment because he knew he's going to Jerusalem where his blood will flow. He will become unfit for God's presence as he dies for us. And he will become sin for us is what the gospel says. That's how he makes us fit for God's presence. That's how he reconciles us to God. An actual event of something he was unafraid to do. Why? Because this passage started with, and you, and you who once were alienated. God had you in view. The whole body of God was brought to earth in order to die on the cross so that you will be reconciled to God. Made made fit for that last day, that final day when we'll see God in all of his perfection. Now we get to the tricky bit. Verse 23. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. It sounds like Paul is saying, these things are true, you would receive reconciliation and peace and all the benefits if, conditional clause, if you keep to the faith. What's going on here? Now, some of the commentaries have pointed out that a better way to understand this passage is that uh, it is... Uh, a better way to translate this passage is perhaps a bit like this. He says, at any rate, if you stand firm in the faith, 
and I'm sure that you will, then this, this, that, and the other will happen. It is not a question that is conditional that should fill us with anxiety and fear. It is not, if, if, no, listen carefully, you've got to hold on to the faith. If you want these things, you've got to, that's not his point. His point is, I'm sure you will hang on to the faith, but just so you understand, it is through faith that all these benefits come to us. I'll, I'll get back to prove this point from Colossians 1 in a second, but let me say this, why this is relevant. Two reasons. Last week, if you were here, we sang a song uh, that was written by, um, by Marty Sampson from Song. These are the words. I cast my mind to Calvary, where Jesus bled and died for me. That one, we sing it often. Beautiful, listen to these words. I see his wounds, his hands, his feet, his savior, my savior on that cursed tree, his body bound and drenched in tears that laid him down in Joseph's tomb. Marty Sampson, this week, wrote to say, I'm genuinely losing my faith, and it doesn't bother me. Like, what bothers me now is nothing. I'm so happy now. So at peace with the world, it's crazy. He's the second of some very prominent men that have recently renounced their faith. Another one, which I know have shocked some of you, is Joshua Harris, who wrote books that influenced the whole culture, who very publicly renounced his faith. And, and you think, but hang on, these guys are, they've written books, they've written songs, and, and, and they just go from worshiping God and loving God and saying these things, and then they turn off. What's happened here? What's going on? Can this happen to me? Is this happening to me? Am I even a believer? Will God bring me safely home? What's going on in my life? Now, Paul, he, he does not want to create anxiety in our hearts by saying, you were once alienated and hostile. Now you've been reconciled if you hold on to the faith, as if you've got to hold on, you've got to hold on. As long as you hold on, nothing, it won't happen to you. Now, the example I had was actually from a WhatsApp picture of, uh, of, of well, I do that with my, with my daughter as well. My neck is too sore today. But, but I can pick Rachel up and put her on my neck. And she would be sitting on my neck like that. And so we're walking. And she sometimes holds on. It's not very helpful because she will grab hold of my hair. She might, there's some ears that she can, she can the, eye, the eyes are quite good to hang on to as well. But, but the hanging on thing doesn't work so well when she holds on. What works far better is if I just grab her feet like that and we're walking. Uh, and the image of salvation is that image, is when Jesus comes and he takes someone who is hostile in mind and alienated from God, he comes to that person and he regenerates them. He makes them alive in Christ. It's Jesus picking them up and putting them on his neck and he holds on to them. He grabs hold of them. Now, this is vital for you to understand because earlier Paul would say in this passage, um, in verse 4 to 6, is that the right one? Yeah. He says, we always thank God, in verse 3, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith, there's faith, in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for the saints. It sounds like these are things that they've generated. They've generated faith. They've generated love because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. 
of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, is it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. He says our faith is by hearing. And it is when we hear the gospel that God through his spirit gives us faith in him. But the trouble with this faith, that not the trouble with this faith, the, the, the point of this faith is it did not originate in us. It is God's word that he sends to us. He preaches it to us. That word is met by faith that's in us. God has given us faith so that we can say uh, with Paul later, he who has begun a good work and you will perfect it to the end. He began the good work. He is the one that gave the word, that gave the faith that makes you become a Christian so that you will hold on. So it is a bit of a confusing line if we teach the children to say, once saved, always saved, but it is grabbing hold of a truth. When someone has been made new in Christ, when they've been regenerated, they were dead in their sin, and they were changed through the act of rebirth that God started. They can't unrebirth. They can't undo the rebirth. But how will I know that someone has been reborn? Well, they will persevere to the end. They will hold on to the end. Uh, we will bury them as Christians because we would have seen that they carried on all the way to the end. That's how we will know. But you should know, if you trust Jesus today, you've been reborn through the Spirit. By nature... We are alienated from God and hostile in mind. And what hostile means is not just a passive hate towards God or a slight disinterest in him. Hostile in mind means I'm by nature God's enemy. There's enmity between me and him. I, I resent him in my mind. I push him away. And when, Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes into you, it changes that so that you're drawn to God, that you, you want to be with God. You're, you're keen for the reconciliation that Jesus brings so that you can be in God's presence. If that has happened to you, if that has truly happened to you, I can say to you what the reformers have said since the 17th, 16th century. Once saved, always saved. It's the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is what people call this whole doctrine. If you studied at some point the word tulip, which outlines the five points of Calvinism, the last one is the P, and it stands for the perseverance of the saints. Today I'm changing that slightly. I'm sure no one would be too upset with me. But I would like to call it the preservation of the saints rather than the perseverance. Simply because... When you're holding on, you think, I'm persevering, and I'm on my dad, and I'm digging into his eyeballs to hang on. No, you're being preserved. That's the point of Scripture. You're being preserved. And Paul says, he's sure that you'll persevere. He's sure that he'll persevere, because he says in verse 11, look at verse 11 of Colossians 1, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. <laughs> He says, the power that raised Christ from the grave, this is the power that now lives in a believer. So this power isn't easily swayed. If you read a blog post about Joshua Harris renouncing his faith, you don't think, oh, I read his books. This is such a powerful thing that he renounces that I will also renounce. I know the spirit living in you is much stronger than the world that we live in. 
if you sing a worship song and you know the man who has wrote this song, he's renounced his faith. Your faith is not based on the worship song. Your faith is not based in the feeling the worship song creates. Your faith is based in a historical event when God sent his son to die. Well, first to be incarnated, become flesh, and then to be crucified, and then to be for you for your reconciliation, one who brings peace between you and God. So Paul carries on. He says, verse, verse 23, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. He's giving us a little strategy there to stay on our dad's necks, in other words. He says, we've had this, and trust me, I've had this. I'm holding on, and I can feel a leg wriggling out like this, and I'm holding on, and she's pulling a leg, and she wants to get off. And then once that leg is off, she's pulling her whole body off, and I'm hanging on to this child that wants to get off, wriggle off my back. You can decide I want to be moved because I do not long, I no longer believe that I want to be on my father's neck and I want to wriggle off. But I have, and many of you have experienced this, and David certainly did in the Old Testament and Peter in the New Testament. You can try and wriggle off God's, God's back, but if he has you, he has you. He does not let go. Because his promises are secure. He said the basis, the locus of your faith is not in you. It's not because a rational argument convinced you. It is because his spirit grabbed hold of you. He said if you want to stay in his back, stay in his word. If you want to stay in his hope, stay in the gospel. He said swim in the gospel. Read it, study it, look into it, worship him for the gospel. That is how you stay in the faith. Now, it's a small change if I said in faith. Uh, it, you feel like faith is something I conjure up. I'm going to believe it. I believe. But th that's not actually what Paul is saying. He's saying in the faith. He's actually saying it's another way of the gospel or the way. Uh, he's saying as long as you believe the gospel that I taught to you, as long as you stay in this gospel, you're safe. Not shifting from the hope that the gospel gives you, that hope that you've heard of through the gospel which has been proclaimed in all creation. I'll close with this. Paul makes a massive, uh, a, a massive assumption there when he says at the end, the gospel of hope has been proclaimed in all creation under the skies. This is Paul saying it. This is the beginning of the early church. They've only touched a few cities in the Roman Empire. I mean, there's just a handful of apostles. The church is minute. How can he say that the gospel has been proclaimed throughout all the earth? He's saying what Romans 1 says, and that is that all of nature is preaching the gospel. I know in a general way, people can, can look at creation and say there is a creator, and he is good. Look at winter, things die, and then in spring there's new life. And look at the sun shining afresh every day. Look at God, he's looking after creation. You've got to suppress that truth if you do not believe that there is a creator. There's so much evidence for a creator that's in charge of the world. Paul can say, the gospel has been heard, has been proclaimed in all creation under the sky. More poignantly, we could say that the specific gospel, Paul would say, has been proclaimed whenever he's been to a city. He goes to a city, goes to visit this, this island far-flung in the Roman Empire, inevitable, by the way, called England. And he goes to England, he doesn't go to 
Gateshead, is Gateshead in England? I think it is. It's very north. But it doesn't go to Dorking. It doesn't go to, to Dorchester. He goes to London. He goes to the city. And there in these cities, he preaches the gospel. And once he's delivered the gospel to these cities, he says, it's been as if I've preached in all of England. Because he knows these city churches will take the gospel. The world is coming to these cities, and they will take these gospel, the gospel out from you. He's reminding you that you are, like him, a minister of this gospel, not just charged with believing the gospel and holding on to it, because you're being held. He's reminding you that you are charged to speak about this gospel. You are charged to being a deacon, a minister, a servant of this gospel. Sometimes the hardest part of being a servant of the gospel is to preach to your own heart. Is to preach to yourself in the face of suffering. To say that I do believe that God is on the throne. I do believe that Jesus is still good. I do believe that Jesus is still in charge of my circumstances and my loved one's circumstances. I believe it is true. And as you're doing that, you're preaching, you're proclaiming the gospel to yourself. As you do that, you're stirring your heart to stay in the gospel, which in turn will bolster your faith so that you can stand on the promises that you have been reconciled with God, that there is peace between you and God. I'll pray for you now, but I would want to say before I pray for those of you that are not Christian, you, you really want Christians to be, to be convinced that they are being held by God. You see what happens when Christians become anxious about their salvation is they will become, they will become quite manipulative. Uh, manipulative, feeling that we have to somehow uh, provide for ourselves and we've got to sort of coax our heart into loving Jesus and following. We've got to sort of make strict rules, quite legalistic about what it means to follow Jesus. And, and if things doesn't happen in a particular way, we are really upset and, 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 and unsure. And if you're friends with Christians that are in that phase, in that position, uh, perhaps you want to share with them the words of Philippians 1 where it says uh, that he who has begun a good work in you will perfect it to the end. You can quote scripture back at your Christian friends and say in Philippians 1 verse 6, remember that God says that he who started this new work in you, he will bring it through all the way to the end. You need Christians to be like that. Because when... If it is, and it is true, that all of mankind are hostile in mind to God, and there's only this group of people that God has chosen that he's given his spirit, you want those people to remain in the spirit so that they can tell you how to follow the way, how to walk the way of life, the way where we trust that God is holding on to us. You, you want that because you don't want them to become manipulative, trapped in legalism, cultish, small-minded, all about little rules. You want them to remain free and in love with a God who holds on to them. So let me pray for us as we uh, look to the Lord's Supper now. Our Father in heaven, we've talked a lot about reconciliation today uh, and what it means to be at peace with you. Uh, and we've looked again at the cost to bring peace between us and you, and that is the cost of your son 
We're so sorry that we're unmoved by the severe cost of your son's death on the cross. We're, we're so sorry that we don't count this as a big deal. Uh, it is a big deal when we live with friends and they bring back a peace offering gift because we want to talk. We count it as a big deal when we eventually sit down with a spouse around the kitchen table to sort out something that's been a difference. Uh, it's a it's big deal. We remember the date and time when these things happened. It causes great anxiety and great relief when there's finally peace between us and people. We're so sorry, Father, that we do not count the peace that you gave us through your son as a big deal. Please forgive us for our dull-mindedness. Please forgive us for our lack of understanding. But now we pray in spite of that, that you'll bring great joy to our hearts. Help us to celebrate the rest of the service as people who are confident in your presence because it is not based in how we feel. It is not based in what we've sung or are singing. It is not based on certain rules that we have kept. The peace that exists between us and you has been bought by Christ who took on the war on the cross and then gave us his spirit of peace that now lives between us and you. Make us confident as we sing your praises. Make us confident as we come to the Lord's Supper that there is peace between us and you and help us to rest in the grace that you've given to us. Do not make us anxious, manipulative, legalistic, but make us joyful, thankful, worshipful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, we are going to sing together again. Now, I, I just wonder if, if I can ask the worship group if we can sing that song of reconciliation, the one that, note, that said reconciliation in the words. Is it going to be difficult if we go back to that song? Um, I'm trying to find it now. <laughs>